0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In the 1930s, the BBC was a very different beast from the somewhat ramshackle institution that had first emerged a decade earlier. Across the 1930s, it increasingly became a cornerstone of the British establishment and also came under keen scrutiny from those in government. For the second instalment of our new series, marking the centenary of the BBC, Matt Elton was joined by the media historian David Hendy to explore this second decade of the BBC's evolution. So, David,
1: in the first instalment, we talked about the 1920s and the sort of very foundation of the BBC. We're now shifting ahead to the 1930s. And the start of this decade saw the BBC embark on a move to a new headquarters. What did this move tell us about the ambition of the BBC? And I suppose the role that it now played as it entered the 1930s on the national stage?
2: I think... The way to answer that is to think about what Savoy Hill represented for the BBC. So the BBC was in Savoy Hill from 1923 until 1932. And Savoy Hill was this, it was the sort of back end of a, of a building that was occupied by uh, engineers. And it was expanded into and and grown into by the BBC in a very ad hoc way. So it wasn't a purpose built Building. It was in a slightly seedy part of London, as it was then. And it developed in a fairly random way as a rabbit warren of, of, of studios and, and offices, and they had problems with rats and the noise of the starlings and the noxious fumes from the River Thames and so on. And people kind of loved working there because it was a it was a kind of tightly knit community but it didn't really have the kind of grandeur or presence or, frankly, the space and the facilities that a fast-growing BBC needed. Now, in 1932, it moves into Broadcasting House. It's in Portland Place, in the centre of the West End. It's purpose-built. It's a brand-new building. And uh, it's it has a sort of extraordinary gleaming appearance it's shaped like an ocean liner built of of white uh, portland stone and it's a it's a statement of of presence and intent it really tells us that the bbc by 1932 is a major national institution an institution of state almost now it's not it's it's not a state run broadcaster it's not a department of state but it it's got point where it feels almost as if it's an organ of the Constitution. Uh, And this isn't just about the BBC's size, that it's now several thousand people. It's not just about the audience, which is many millions of listeners. It's not just about the programmes. It's about its own sense of itself as uh, a formal, respectable, dignified institution uh, that is has a central role in British life.
1: And what might we have witnessed, uh, seen and heard, I suppose, if we were to take a journey round this new building when it was first moved into in 1932?
2: Well, the first thing that you'd, you'd experience is this rather airy, grand reception, Grand in a nineteen thirty sense. I mean, it had a sort of Art Deco coolness to it. So it was marble. It was spacious. It had these sort of Art Deco flourishes. It had a, 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 a frieze by uh, Eric Gill uh, about the parable of the sower. Um, and it was sort of coolly elegant in a modern, dignified way that, that suggested modernity. Uh, but with a sort of hint of tradition as well. And then you go further into the building um, and you have a a series of lifts, separate lifts for artists and for managers. Uh, So you immediately sense that there's something a little bit more hierarchical going on in this building. And then you've got... Well, you've got three basement floors because the, the, they've dug down into the London clay below. And in those basement floors, you've got a kind of uh, a series of studios and a concert hall. Then above ground, you've got eight more floors in a sort of central block of studios. So all the studios are in a central block, uh, wrapped. Around by hundreds of offices. So, so there's a sort of soundproofing from the, from London outside. And it was described at the time as, as a, a sound factory. Uh, and that's really what it was about. The, the individual studios were purpose built, uh, but again, using the latest designs and, and in a very elegant way. So a talks studio still had that residual idea from Savoy Hill of trying to domesticate itself. The talk studio was designed to look a little bit like a library, a modern library. The religious uh, broadcasting studio uh, was a consecrated uh, chapel. Um, And so you had the effort to try and make studios suitable for their purposes. Uh, uh, But and there was a there was a telephone exchange, there's switchboard, there are control rooms, there are uh, loads of uh, bathrooms and green rooms and so on. So it was it was very well equipped. The other thing that you would have noticed would have been a certain formality about the place. Uh, you would be greeted by well uniformed commissionaires at the entrance if you were. John Reith, they would stand to attention for you. Um, And if you wandered around the building, you would have seen a new coat of arms that had been commissioned for the BBC. Uh, You would see a flag uh, on the top of the building uh, and you would probably see people regularly polishing all the, the brass door handles and the taps and so on in the bathroom. So it was, a, it was a building the BBC was proud of and felt had to look at its best all the time. The one thing that might have been surprising if you'd been a member of staff was that almost as soon as the building was opened, it was... Discovered to be too small. The BBC was expanding so quickly uh, that, in fact, there was still pressure on space, even in this brand new purpose built building.
1: That's amazing. And it's such a contrast to what we spoke about last time, or at least it feels that way looking back. Because in the 1920s, we talked a lot about how it was feeling its way. Uh, almost ramshackle, I suppose, around the edges. And now we're talking about something that feels much more institutional and obviously growing, as you say, really quickly. Did this change in atmosphere and this expansion change the kind of people the BBC attracted and, I suppose, also cause any problems or any tension?
2: It's difficult to know whether or not that. I mean, in, in a sense... In a sense, the building captures a a corporation that is changing anyway. Uh, There are members of staff who say that the building does change things further. It makes it harder to feel part of a tightly knit community. It's harder to find your colleagues. You don't bump into your colleagues in the same way that you used to. So it feels more formal and it's possible, therefore, that people felt differently about the institution that they were working for. But in any case, the the makeup of the BBC was was changing anyway. That first generation, the pioneering generation, the Cecil Lewises, the Arthur Burroughs, had left the BBC. And you've got new people coming in, very often people with an established track record of doing things outside of the BBC. So... In the variety department, for instance, you have people coming in who've got a a solid experience in the theatre and entertainment world. uh, And in the area of talks, You've got people who have come in like Rex Lambert or Charles Seatman who've got uh, experience of working in adult education or the Workers' Educational Association and so on. Jeffrey Brideson, uh, uh, who's got experience uh, as a writer and critic, and Olive Shapley, uh, who's worked in teaching and and so on. So it's, a, it's a, people coming in with a different hinterland. And one of the things that's happening is... We're moving from an ad hoc, let's work out what broadcasting is era that defined Savoy Hill into a new age where people knew what broadcasting was. Programs are now more regular. It's more routine. And so it's, in a sense, less amateur. It's more uh, organized. It's more recurrent. And for some people, of course, that makes it less interesting as a place to work. And, and, you know, some of the people, some of the people in that first generation leave slightly disillusioned with a sense that it was becoming too establishment, becoming too routine. And a lot of the, that pioneering fun had
1: disappeared. That idea of it becoming more establishment is interesting because is it fair to say that this was the decade in which the BBC became sort of increasingly entangled in the world of politics and I suppose the state more generally I think so. In the very early days, politicians really weren't interested
2: in broadcasting. There was a moment, I think, that changed things quite dramatically. And that was the general strike back in 1926. Now, the BBC had a particular role within that general strike as the only supplier of news. And until that point, the BBC had not been a news organisation, really. That was the point where it starts to actually provide its own news service. But more significantly, it becomes deeply entangled with the world of Westminster and Whitehall. It's working closely with the machinery of the state in order to get up-to-date information and so on. And there's no doubt about it. It, it. There's a there's a process going on here where the establishment figures within the BBC are socially at one with the establishment figures within the world of politics. They 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 share uh, the same class background by and large. And in the BBC, there's a there's a sense in which if the BBC is to have a purpose in terms of supporting the democratic process, then they have to be involved in uh, democratic politics, the world of politics. And politicians are learning after the general strike that radio is an extremely important tool for influencing public opinion. So, It's now that on the government side, the machinery of public relations, press releases, press briefings and so on is really, really taking off. So the two worlds are are moving ever more closely together. And of course, that creates tensions. Um, As soon as the political art as soon as the political class take an interest in politics and take an interest in public opinion, they start to become more interested in whether or not the BBC is reliable. I mean, the politics itself is becoming more disputatious. So you've got, for instance, mass unemployment, you've got controversial political uh, measures coming in like the means test, and you've got within the BBC, a, a a sort of liberal, progressive, humane tradition among, for instance, the talks department or documentary and features makers who see it as their mission to explain uh, the conditions of uh, the masses, as it were, to explain the implications of new policy. And so you've got that that social documentary agenda, that desire to analyse government policy and its impact on ordinary lives at the same time as you've got politicians and governors at the BBC who are socially very similar to the politicians rather concerned about whether or not this means that there are troublemakers at the BBC. So so there are genuine Probes at this time into the staffing of the BBC, a concern whether or not uh, radicals or, or, or Bolsheviks have have infiltrated the BBC in some way. Uh, Reith himself becomes very very nervous about this and and recognizes that he has to be seen to be doing something about it. So Charles Seepman, for instance, who has been head of talks. Um, in the aftermath of Hilda Matheson leaving the BBC, um, is moved sideways and eventually out of the BBC um, as a result of conservative anxieties about the presence of communists. Now, I've seen Charles Siepens' staff file. The BBC itself is clear that he wasn't a communist and that he was reliable and, and so on. But it's clear that they they were aware of these political anxieties and needed to respond in some way. And you get more conservative figures coming in in influential positions at the BBC. John Coatman, who takes over uh, in news. Uh, is a sort of Kipling-esque figure who, who worked as a policeman on the uh, in India. You've actually got a, a slightly mysterious figure, Colonel Alan Dornay, uh, who is uh, in charge of programmes. Nominally a BBC figure, but in fact. Uh, takes half of his pay from the government and is clearly there to vet senior figures and has regular meetings with MI five. So, so there's all sorts of evidence, if you like, of the of the BBC's close and not entirely friction free relationship with with top level politics.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: It is now. The thing that you do to listen to the radio in the evening, to be listening to the BBC on a Saturday night, to be listening to the nine o'clock news, uh, to hear the chimes of Big Ben, um, to listen to a major sporting event on the BBC. The BBC is is part of the sort of fabric of
1: of weekly life. To what extent in this period then was the BBC a sort of a trying to walk a tightrope between different uh, needs and forces.
2: Oh, I, I think especially in the 1930s, you've got a situation where the politics is becoming more fractious uh, in British society anyway. You've got uh, mass unemployment, you've got hunger marches, you've got a, a, a government that is tightening the screws on living standards and support for the the, the worse off through things like the means test. Um And at the same time, you've got inside the BBC, and the BBC is by no means a monolith here. I mean, you've got a kind of uh, a huge range of opinion. You've got people inside the BBC, say in the talks department or amongst documentary makers, who really believe that the job of the BBC is to examine what's happening in society, to examine the effects of government policy, the experience of being unemployed and so on. The same time, you've got in the management corridors of the BBC uh, an administrative class who are aware of the fact that politicians are taking a closer interest in the BBC, and are deeply anxious about uh, the national broadcaster stirring things up unnecessarily, and and you can see a BBC that is in many ways facing in, in different directions here. It is in many ways the way in which it's run. It's increasingly cautious and it's increasingly conservative in its judgments about the kind of programmes it should make. Um, but, but there's always little corners of the BBC that kind of persist in, in making trouble. And and one of those corners, for instance, is in Manchester, North Region. And North Region was where uh, there's an influential figure, Archie Harding, worked as head of programs there, and he recruited troublemakers, effectively, uh, like Geoffrey Brideson, a kind of uh, an angry poet, Uh, Olive Shapley, who was uh, an active communist when she was at Oxford University, um and Joan Littlewood, the, who was later famous activist in, in, in theatre. And these, these producers were passionately committed to exploring the experience of working people, what it was like to work in steelworks, what it was like to be a miner or a miner's wife or a traveller or a, a, a lorry driver and, and, and so on. Um, and, and it's a reminder, really, that even though there were lots of people harrumphing at the centre of the BBC in the management corridors, they didn't always manage to stop uh, progressive exploratory programmes being made. As always, the BBC was too big an operation for the top brass to supervise everything. And that created the space for what we might call oppositional kind of programming.
1: And what are some of the key or indicative programmes or broadcasts that were made during the 1930s?
2: I mean, I've been talking about you know, documentaries and social features and they were definitely a part of the mix. So Geoffrey Brideson's epic social documentary features that he made in the in the mid and late 1930s, uh, steel, coal, wool, uh, they had big titles like that and they were kind of epic, poetic portraits of working life. And and they had a big impact at at the time. Olive Shakley's documentaries were in a similar tradition, but much more rooted in in real people and interviews and um, uh, chats with people on the street about the ordinary experience of, of daily life. So there's that documentary tradition that's taking off. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some wonderfully escapist programmes that are being produced by the Variety Department, which is a growing department in the BBC. It's getting more and more resources. So a classic example, I suppose, would be In Town Tonight, uh, which first appeared in 1933, and it was a Saturday night programme. A one-stop shop window was the idea, uh, where the programme would begin with a a lively medley of music and voices and so on. And it would then have lots and lots of guests uh, who happened to be in town tonight, in London, passing through. And they might be a, a Hollywood star like Cary Grant, or it might be some eccentric londoner uh, like a, a singing chimney sweep or or someone who swallows glass or something like that um and the idea was it was um a, a fast paced slickly made series of contrasting interviews and personalities that was informal and it was friendly. And in many ways, it was the kind of, it was the classic Saturday night entertainment variety show, but with a kind of magazine format, I suppose. And it was a huge hit. I mean, millions of people would tune in every Saturday night. And, and uh, you know, people would stand outside Broadcasting House and St. George's Hall round the corner where some of the parts were um, were broadcast from. And to sign to, to seek autographs, uh, from guests. So, um, that was a big, big hit. I think it's really important to add one more thing to the mix apart from the social documentaries and the huge variety hits. And that's television because the 1930s is, is when the BBC television service starts. Um, and so, there were lots of programmes on the schedule and one stood out above all else in terms of popularity. Uh, And that was a series called Picture Page, which was in many ways a television version of In Town Tonight. It was on twice a week and it had a mix of guests and it might well be that it was someone who'd just flown across the Atlantic uh, followed by someone who could tear a telephone directory in half or something like that. It was a it was a again an eclectic mix. And in the program uh, we can see In many ways, the similar thing happening to what had happened in Savoy Hill in the 1920s. They're trying to work out the grammar of this new medium. So how do you link different items um, on television? Well, the device they took was to have someone, uh, Joan Miller, sitting at a mock-up of a telephone switchboard and switching people through from one guest to another. What viewers didn't realise at the time, actually, was that Joan Miller... Got her cue from the studio director uh, by means of a small electric shock uh, that was given. She was wired up at the ankles, and so given an electric shock when she had to cue in the next guest. Um, uh, so, so here is uh, uh, this picture page was a was a given. The fact that there were actually very few television viewers in the nineteen thirties, amongst those few thousand viewers, picture page was by some way the most popular program.
1: I mean, how, that's that's fascinating. How, how should we see the introduction of the BBC's television offerings in terms of how it was regarded in terms of its overall output? How do people at the BBC see television, I suppose?
2: At the time and since, I think there's been something of a myth that's built up, which is that the BBC didn't really fancy television and Reith in particular loathed it. Now, there's some truth in that. Uh, the BBC was comfortable with radio and it wasn't sure about television but it it keeps a wary eye on developments in the 1920s so television as a technology is being developed in the the early 20s and the mid-1920s John Logie Baird is clearly a, a an important character he starts off experimenting almost like an, a, a sort of attic experiment with bits of old hat stands and and tea chests and and knitting needles and so on and he creates a kind of workable mechanical system for broadcasting images and in the early 1930s the BBC gives him some support and backing and it's providing some studio space Uh, it provides some staff support so the BBC is increasingly involved but warily so. And one of the reasons it's wary about it is that there are lots of people backing television as a commercial enterprise who are, the BBC feels, over-promising. This is still primitive technology. Television sets are not selling very well. The images are not very good. The, the, the screens are tiny. It's still expensive. And the BBC... Because its ethos was the maximum benefit to the maximum number, it felt that there was a danger here that if it threw all its support and weight behind television for a technology that was over-promising and under-delivering, then it could collapse as a new medium. And so it's, it's being very, very tentative. It's also by the 1930s, aware that there's new and better technology that's being developed. EMI and Marconi are coming up with an electronic uh, version, completely different to Baird technology, which involves the cathode ray tubes. And the BBC sees this as having a much greater potential. And so by 1936, when the BBC are launching the first regular high definition, as it's called, television service in the world. um, It's fairly committed to this new technology, although the government has insisted (laughs) that the BBC uh, juggle with both Baird's technology and the new EMI Marconi technology. Uh, The BBC is very clear that one is superior to the other. So, So what you've got is several years in which the BBC is slightly dragging its feet over television, but it's not because it doesn't see television as the future. It knows that television is coming. Even Reith knows that television is a certainty. It's really a case of making sure that large amounts of resource are not diverted from something that exists and works and reaches millions, radio, to go to something which only reaches a few thousand. So, In many ways, the the BBC's position over television is indicative of its sort of democratic impulse, that that idea of the maximum benefit to the maximum
1: number. Talking about the maximum number of people, do we get a sense of how the population at large regarded the BBC at this point? It's not always easy to get an
2: accurate sense because, well, one way of doing it is is to see what people are saying in the press. Uh, in the letters pages of the press and the newspapers and so on, but of course they they are <laughs> they've got skin in the game. I mean, the newspapers are are distrustful about the BBC. They don't want the BBC to expand into their territory. They would be very very happy for a, a relatively weak BBC, and so newspapers have a lot of fun representing a caricature of the BBC as a bit stiff a bit pompous slightly ridiculous um you know there are cartoons of of monocle wearing announcers in plus fours and 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 so on and so a popular image is in circulation of the BBC as something rather kind of a a feat or, or bizarre or ridiculous in some way Now, of course, there is other evidence because the BBC are getting thousands and thousands of letters arriving every day from the public. um, And by the second half of the 1930s, it's got its own listener research unit. So there is a more accurate representation about what the listeners actually think. And they are generally more positive, although still contradictory. And what it really reveals is you can't please everyone all of the time. Uh, so so some people think a, a program is delightful. Other people find it loathsome. And producers will say, well, what do you do? You know, you can't, you, you, people have widely diverging tastes. That's very clear. But you get a sense of which are the most popular programmes and you get a sense of people treating the BBC now as a major entertainment medium. It is now the thing that you do to listen to the radio in the evening, to be listening to the BBC on a Saturday night, to be listening to the nine o'clock news, uh, to hear the chimes of Big Ben. Um, listen to a major sporting event on the BBC. The BBC is is part of the sort of fabric of of weekly life. Uh, And there are some really touching accounts in uh, letters and memoirs and the records of mass observation, for instance, where people talk very, very movingly about how the BBC has transformed their experience of being able to listen to football matches or to concerts that they would never have had access to before. So, so I think just as it's impossible to characterise the BBC in one way, it's, it, it's impossible to characterise the public's view of the BBC. But generally speaking, the newspapers encouraged a caricature, but the evidence from the listeners and the viewers themselves is, is actually a, a much more affectionate view of the BBC.
1: And it was something that was part of national life at this point. It was. It's The, the BBC provides a sort
2: of calendar of events that are shared moments. So b- people would listen to the chimes of Big Ben. They would uh, listen in to the Trooping of the Colour, um, Saints' Days, holidays. Christmas Day was a big... Uh, gathering around the wireless. The wireless was a central part of the Christmas Day. And of course, after 1932, you have the first uh, royal Christmas Day broadcast as well. So so there are kind of spread through the calendar. There are these moments of, sort of shared experience that become shared through the BBC. And so the BBC does become part of the fabric of... The national culture. And indeed, you could even say that the BBC has to some extent created a sense of national culture out of events that otherwise would have been experienced, witnessed by very few people.
1: The end of the 1930s obviously witnessed the growing spectre of global war, which we'll cover in our next episode. But how ready was the BBC to cover this conflict?
2: A lot of it was going to be worked out in the heat of battle because no one quite knows what the course of war is going to be. But the BBC had been preparing since the middle, even the early years of the 1930s. So those members of staff who were attuned to international politics knew that in 1933, with Hitler coming to power, something had changed – Round about 1935, you've got conversations taking place between the BBC and the government at a very top level where the BBC is being encouraged to prepare for the coming of war. And especially since 1938 uh, and the Munich crisis, you've got a a series of measures that the BBC is is taking – a lot of which are, are centred on the notion that when war comes, it's going to come suddenly and it's going to be probably an overwhelming attack on London. So there's a great deal of emphasis on planning for the dispersal of staff. Properties are, are searched for around the country. Where could bits of the BBC move out to uh, to keep the the... the to keep broadcasting on air if there's an immense attack on London? What about the transmitters? What's the implication of having transmitters? Would they help guide enemy bombers to their targets? If so, does there need to be some new scheme for the transmitters? And what about the security of the BBC's buildings? There's a process that's going on where steel shutters are are being installed uh, and... uh, arrangements being made for staff to have a sort of security clearance and so on. And staff are also graded into different categories, some of whom would be vital to the BBC's own war effort, and some of which would be encouraged to uh, join uh, the war effort more directly. So there's several years of preparation here. And by the time you get to The very last days of August 1939, you've got a pretty detailed plan of action worked out. Uh, And uh, that means that things move very, very quickly on the 1st of September 1939. uh, And we're in a new era for the BBC at that point.
0: That was David Hendy, Emeritus Professor at the University of Sussex. David's new book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now, published by Profile. You can also read more from David on the history of the BBC in every issue of BBC History magazine. And don't miss the next instalment of this podcast series, in which Matt and David will be following the BBC's progression through the 1940s and the Second World War. That'll be landing in your podcast feeds in March. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.